Hello and welcome to Podcasting the Past, a project led by the University of Glasgow that aims to help educators collaborate, discuss and teach higher history. My name is Fraser McGowan and I will be your host for today's episode. Today's episode will focus on key issue four on evaluating the effectiveness of the New Deal. Listen, baby. Do you feel that it's wrong to discriminate against a person solely on the basis of his race or color? Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Uh, I am delighted to introduce you to our guests on today's episode of Podcasting the Past, Mr. Andrew Parker, who teaches Our Lady in St. Patrick's School in Dumbarton, and Mark McClay, who is a lecturer in American history at the University of Glasgow. So the first question I want to ask you, Andrew, is what are the key challenges of teaching the New Deal topic to high school students? Um, the New Deal topic is quite a tricky one for high school students. It kind of... Um, it kind of, the, the kids that gravitate towards it tend to be the, the kids who really, really got an interest in this kind of thing, particularly kids who've also done a bit of modern studies because quite often they, they cover an American topic in that. Um, the main problem I think is that it's economic history and economics and kids are least familiar with that. Usually what they're doing is social history um, or you know something to do with war, something that, that they can grasp quite easily. Um, economic history can be that wee bit more dry and there's a complexity to it that um, you have to unravel as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder as well for the, because I know from, from speaking to you and to other teachers that this is a topic that isn't taught that much. Um, it tends to be, if you can skip one, it, it tends to be one of those ones. Is whether, you know, we can get, there's a way of getting away from viewing it as that economic dry history and sort of, contextualizing you know when roosevelt comes to power in 1933 you know people are wondering is america going to go through some sort of revolution you know similar perhaps to what has happened in you know previously in, in russia um with um or or what is going on in germany at the same time with with mass unemployment you know when, when roosevelt comes to power a quarter of americans are out of, of, of a job um and when he gives his famous speech, which you've heard the clip of in the intro theme music that we have of, you know, the only thing we have to feed itself uh, is feed itself is what's remembered from that speech. And it's this great line. It sounds wonderful. It sounds gives people confidence. It wasn't the line that got the biggest amount of applause. There was a line that Roosevelt had where he said that if, if Congress doesn't act, I will assume dictatorial powers, essentially, is, was, was, was what he said. Um, and that got the biggest applause. And Eleanor Roosevelt was sat watching this speech and she was really worried by the fact that that was the line that the Americans responded to the most, which shows you that America was in this fragile state where it could have gone the way of, of Germany. Um, uh, it did in the 1930s, such was the sort of fever um, in the country. So, you know, sort of that context for students just, you know, that, that, that immediately might grab some of them as well. I think in terms of uh, personality, 
um, Roosevelt is a really fascinating uh, figure. Um, somebody that is, is, is refreshing in a way because the kids will have done the dictators, they'll have done, um, you know, prime ministers in Britain and obviously usually something to do with Adolf Hitler or the Tsar or something like that. Um, but he's a fascinating figure because as a person who is, he's from a, if I remember, he's, he's from quite a wealthy background. Um, but he's a person who is, I think he was almost decried for that, for being sort of almost like a, a class traitor or something like that. You, can, you maybe know more about this than me, but um, he's actually gone against his kind of background and his class to actually say, right, well, we're going to have to do something here. I'm going to have to, you know, bulldoze through um, reforms that are going to really upset the sort of American way of, of sort of doing things. Um, I think another thing that the, the the kids have to understand is that sort of it's uh, in terms of, sort of rugged individualism, that the United States has got this history of from its very origins of people going out there by themselves, building themselves up, maybe making their fortune in the American dream, and that so this this kind of stuff was really contrary to that. It's really contrary to the sort of American the sort of foundations of the this sort of American society, I suppose. Definitely. I mean, uh, just to give an example, to further your point on that, you know, when they introduce some of these welfare programs to try and give the unemployed some money if, if they're not able to employ them um, throughout the New Deal, there's a governor in one of the American states, I think it's Oregon, um, who essentially says this is a lot of nonsense and at one point even suggests that we should just euthanize the poor. You know, the poor and unemployed because they're a leech on society. So that just shows you that, you know, while Roosevelt's trying to drag this country that has this history of, no, no, just we'll do it ourselves, you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And he's saying, well, it's not working right now. A quarter of the population are unemployed. It's been getting worse for the last four years. We need to do something. And it just makes for such an interesting moment. I think it'd be interesting as well, I think, to know um, or to be able to compare. We've all, we, we, we cut off in our, usually what schools will cover is the the democracy topic and and. Britain, uh, 1851 and 1951, um, and all the kind of changes that the Liberals made, and them, you know, changing that laissez-faire approach, being more interventionist. I don't know what you might be able to, to sort of to 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 sort of uh, help me out here. Did the United States have a similar thing? It didn't look like it before Roosevelt. They didn't have much. There weren't very many social programs or intervention. You only see a wee bit of it during World War One. And, and Roosevelt's actually in that government. He's the Undersecretary of the Navy, I believe, during World War I. And under Woodrow Wilson, the, the United States doesn't have some government intervention during that. Um, but they, during the 1920s, they essentially cast it aside as conservative Republicans take power. But Roosevelt was always inspired by that. And one of the things he looks to when he comes into power is, OK, what did Wilson do? Um, and so that's there, there. There's a slight legacy, but it was only in extreme times that it had ever happened. Are there any particular lessons that you've taught that have worked especially well on the New Deal, Andrew? Is there anything that that students particularly latch onto? Are there any particular techniques that you use to kind of stimulate an interest in abstract economic history? Um, it is a tricky one. Um, with what are the basics that we kind of use? Um, the the foundation. Thing, uh, that we kind of probably have to get across is trying to unpick some of the, the measures that Roosevelt introduced. So the sheer amount of things that he did in his first you know, few years is quite hard for kids to, to, to kind of to grasp. So 
simple thing that we do is if we make a timeline, all the things that you did and then we highlight the ones that are probably remembered as being more significant because there's no point in the, in the kids remembering 10, 12 things that were laws that were passed or social programmes that were introduced. Um, it's picking out you know, two or three, maybe four um, things that are really significant and then discussing why this was a change from the past um, and what the benefits were. Uh, quite often we do just to get out of... Um, you know, doing too much writing sometimes, it's just matching things up. So you might have um, a big bunch of cards with, you know, here's a measure, what would be the impact, what would be the limitation of this. That's quite a, a, a simple sort of formula um, to do your sort of higher essays and follow that sort of analysis, analysis plus um, sort of element that we were talking about. Um, historical perspectives are good. Um, I, like, I love all this stuff. So I start to go on a, to my kids about this stuff and a lot of them are quite, you know, who's Milton Friedman or um, you, who's John Maynard Keynes or, 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 or more recently um, there's a, an economist I've been reading called Mariana Mazzucato who talks more about state intervention and the partnership between state and private enterprise, all this kind of stuff. And some of the kids who've got a real interest in this stuff um, will kind of grasp and get into that historiography, but it's a tricky balance because you don't want to switch the majority off. You just, you know, they're, they're into history because they want a qualification um, and they want to just, you know, push through and get the, get the grade. And um, so there's a sort of a, a balance to be struck. I take it it's quite difficult to explain complex, abstract ideas like aggregate demand and the gold standards to high school pupils. So how, how do you avoid Absolutely. getting kind of stuck in the weeds of those kind of concepts? Um, it's very tricky to avoid politics, modern politics sometimes. It's something that we've got to be careful of in our school. Um, and I think that it's good to, to say, well, look what happened in 2008. That's kind of starting to fade from memory now a little bit for, for young people because they're now, they, you know, they were born, you know, slightly before that now, the kids that would be in sort of um, fifth, sixth year. But for a while we did have that. Look what happened in 2008, what's happened? Um, what's been the the sort of repercussions of this crash? Um, what you know? What did the government try and do about it? And you can sort of relate back to that. It's still quite tricky, but in terms of the sort of detailed concepts, it's something that we can we can get around really complicated things by you know keeping it fairly simple. The, the knowledge, the in-depth knowledge that they have to have at higher isn't hugely you know the, the level that that you guys would be looking at. That, that's really interesting. You should say that because a lot of the literature on the Great Depression and on the New Deal makes a direct comparison between the 2008 crash and the 1929 crash and the aftermath and the intervention that, that governments make to try and mitigate the consequences of the crashes. That brings me to a question for you, Mark, which is what are some of the latest research findings or research directions in the historical literature? Yeah, so the, the New Deal scholarships are really sort of interesting in a really interesting state now because you had a couple of waves of different scholarship on the New Deal. So first of all, in the immediate aftermath, historians said this was the best thing ever. They wrote, the New Deal was wonderful. It solved everything, the Great Depression, social problems. And these were mostly historians who lived through the Great Depression, admired Roosevelt, uh, and very much thought it was a positive thing. Then you sort of got this backlash to this scholarship which said, well... Um, you know, some historians said it didn't go far enough. There could have been more social welfare implemented. You could have had national health care, for example. Um, it was a missed opportunity for that. And other conservative historians that said this government intervention was terrible. It, you know, it, it stymied that American individualism that we've already talked about and made people dependent on government. Now, 
New Deal scholarship is essentially looking at the policies Roosevelt put in on their merits rather than with some great bias and tact, I think. So, for example, you can you just have to sort of be aware that when Roosevelt comes in, he just he throws everything and sees what sticks to the wall. It's a, it's a period of mass bold experimentation. And so you get contradictory outcomes. Um, so, for example, take agriculture. Um, you know, initially people thought that some of the reforms in agriculture are fantastic. They'd helped farmers during the Great Depression. But actually a lot of the new scholarship is showing what they really helped was the rich farmers, the, the bigger landowners. And what they actually did was they pushed a lot of sharecroppers, as they were called, the poorer, um, those renting off the of the landowners off of the farms and, and often into the cities. Uh, and, and again, you can sort of introduce the racial element here that a lot of these sharecroppers would have been African-Americans um, and, and often descendants of, of slaves. On the other hand, you can look at the New Deal as a scholar see it as a time of when unions blossomed and were able to fight for rights and achieve gains in a way that they never had before. And in America, arguably, they never would really again because, because unions would, would come to be neutered by a law that was passed in the 1940s. You can also look at the jobs that were given, whether it's the Civilian Conservation Corps or the, the Works Progress Administration and say, look at all those people that would have been unemployed. Roosevelt gave them jobs. Um, I suppose one other interesting element that's really coming out is, 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 is how the New Deal was sold to the American people. Uh, and indeed, scholars are looking at, for example, the role that Hollywood played in, in really selling it to, to the public. And I think that's would be really interesting, you know, if, if, if teachers were able to, to play a couple of these clips to, to students to really show it. There's one I use in my teaching called The Road is Open Again, um, which is a Hollywood production. It's available online. And it's this really cheery, upbeat jingle. And it features like three ex-former presidents uh, talking, like you know, actors playing as them, talking about how wonderful Roosevelt is and how wonderful the New Deal is. It's completely biased. There is, there is no, no, no criticism there, but it shows that if the American people have been exposed to this, almost, it's almost propaganda. Um, it, it also helps convey why the New Deal was seen so favorably. You know, like, you know, it was being sold and sold in a way that had never been sold before because we've only just got to the stage where you've got moving, talking films. You know, the talkies arrived in 1929, I think it is. So it's this really interesting moment. It's interesting you should say that about trade unionism and, you know, labor unions in the US because that's your kind of contemporary parallels there. You know, Joe Biden described himself as being a union man and I saw something on the news recently about him saying that he wanted employers to start paying their employees more that would be a good way for them to hang on to employees to make sure they have a constant supply of labour. Um, what, what are the key points of analysis and evaluation that you try to get across to your students on this topic, Andrew? Um, as I was saying before, the, the easiest thing, um, because we're getting kids into a pattern um, of, you know, have your knowledge, have your analysis, the analysis would tend to be, right, what was the impact? Um, and I think if we can, let's say you were, you were looking at the, the agricultural uh, point that you made. Okay, so how did Roosevelt's uh, policies impact agriculture? How did it make a difference and improve people's lives? So you would look at that and then you would come back to, as your analysis plus, you may well come back to like, what's the limitation? And then like you say, the limitations were to benefit the bigger, bigger landowners, not so much the sharecroppers um, from what you were saying. Um, one of the things I think the kids can really um, 
relate to because we've got an awful lot of stuff just now about the Me Too movement, about um, uh, the Black Lives Matter thing, is who was missed out. And I think the, the, the one of the key things, it's quite an easy thing to grasp, is, um, uh, you might correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think Roosevelt was pretty hamstrung or he was, he was pretty terrified to actually take on the segregationists in the South. Um, and he, he, he constantly kicked that into touch as far as, as, as what I've read, which is probably fairly basic. Yep. Um, that I think he said himself, I can't actually address this because I'll lose the support of Democrats in the South, I think, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, that the race element of the New Deal is one of the things that's most interesting about it. And, and I suppose, you know, saddening about it is the fact that much of the New Deal bypasses African-Americans because Franklin Roosevelt is a Democrat, and at the time the Democrats had a lot of strength among Southern segregationist Democrats, and he couldn't alienate them if he wanted to get his programs through Congress. So he even he even manages to kill a bill that would have outlawed lynching because the Southern Democrats wouldn't have supported it. Um, and you also have, you know, we've already talked about agriculture, but most of the programs they would have been administered, especially in the South, by 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 racist people that wouldn't have given any of the part-time jobs to, to African-Americans. You also have, um, there's also been recent scholarship which shows that the housing that the, that the federal government built during the New Deal actually helped to ensconce segregation in American cities because there was, there was sort of red lines that were drawn as to where, you know, black Americans could live and where um, white Americans would live. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in some ways the, the New Deal serves to further ensconce racism in American society and government. On the other hand, black Americans vote for Roosevelt and the Democrats in a way they never had before. They had always been Republicans because Republicans had been the party that had opposed slavery. Whereas just the fact that Roosevelt did something, that some of the stuff of the New Deal trickled down to them and they got some benefit of it, they then put cast their lot with the Democrats. Um, that, that throws up another slightly tricky thing for the kids to get their head around is there's I mean, maybe not a reversal but there's a, a flip somewhere in american history where i think nowadays if you were studying american politics you would say well the democrats are uh, more into you know racial equality that kind of stuff and the republicans are you know with trump especially and all the rest of it in the last few years and trump's been quite good i think for modern studies because he's you know an interesting character no matter what you think of him um but the, an idea that he's kind of, you know, almost upholding or, or, or kind of reveling the sort of, you know, um, inequalities of American society. And that, that flip from what, what, when did it change? When did the Democrats suddenly become the, the kind of party for racial equality and the Republicans who were the ones that ended slavery? Um, when did they become the sort of the, the almost like the bad guys in 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 a sense as well? Um, but I think the the racial stuff that you've talked about is a really good end for the kids to pick up marks um, because it's an easy criticism to remember. Well, actually, who did they, who who was kind of left out here? Well, actually, black Americans were left out, and if you can think, well, all you need to do is think about something um, that disadvantaged them. If they say the same thing over and over again, obviously that's not going to work. But it looks like there's quite a few things that they can be talking about in, in a way that they were kind of left out, like the anti-lynching bill, or like things like the, the, the I think they left the, the, the kind of 
didn't get the benefit of the jobs in sort of public works as well. Um, I, th I think that was a, I think something yeah, I picked up on. Yeah, they would be the last to be helped, right. essentially, you know. Yeah. The, if there were some still remaining after you'd helped most, right. most, most of the white Americans who were viewed as more deserving, then there would be jobs there. Right. Some administrators were more sympathetic. You know, there were some people, liberal people in charge that tried to help black Americans as well. But, you know, particularly in the South, not that the North was some racial nirvana, but mm -hmm. particularly in the South, you know, with very few exceptions, mm -hmm. um, you, you don't really get black people being helped by these programs. That, that brings me to my penultimate question, which is what do you think are the contemporary parallels, the contemporary resonances between the, the time we're living in now and the New Deal era, the, the 1930s? What, are the, what kind of similarities can, can students latch on to there? I think as we've kind of touched upon, the 2008 crash I think is a, a really good parallel um, because you can talk about, well, how do governments deal with this? I remember when I was, um, when I was a student in one of my first classes I took, which was a higher class, and the teacher's saying, right, what do you do when your um, country's in recession, when your you know, economy's kind of stagnant, what do you do about it? And um, put me on the spot and said, what would you do, Mr. Parker? And I did say, well, you know, you build things. You can build things. You can put people back to work building things. You can, you know, you can borrow money and you can, you can argue that it's going to be reinvested in the economy. Um, but then the, the arguments for and against that is it, you know, is your borrowing going to go too high? Um, and I think the kids can really get into that, that kind of stuff. What are they going to, how are they going to... Um, solve a problem like this. It's not been an easy one for economists to solve. Obviously, we've had the, the sort of austerity agenda in Britain. Um, a lot of the kids at my school know about that because they probably, you know, suffered in some way from it um, in, in some way or other. So they've got an opinion on things, which is, which is brilliant. But quite often you will hear from kids that are not necessarily from a, a wealthy background. Why should we pay for people who are not working? Why should we pay to give people? So there's a good discussion there to be had. And I think that's the, the best way that I've found of, of talking about that is how much should, I, should, should your government intervene? And when is it good to intervene? And when is it not so good to intervene? And there's always these um, unforeseen consequences, I think, of when a state intervenes in, 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 a, in a, an economy or... Um, you know, we've got the controversy just now about the National Health Service, which is a, a really good one because a lot of the a lot of the kids all understand that they've had experience of it. You know, why was that created, and then but what are the what are the, the drawbacks? Well, already I've done that, so they'll be able to get into you know what what are the drawbacks to you know this amount of spending on public works or this amount of spending on social security they didn't have before. Why is that a good thing and why is that a bad thing? Is it going to make people complacent and lazy? as uh, some people might argue, or is it going to actually give them a hand up and say, right, okay, I can, you know, I can now become a productive citizen and the economy will start to sort of move again. And you can certainly see why students would debate that. I mean, there are inherently complex issues and there's probably no right or wrong answer. You can understand why there would be sincerely held beliefs on both sides of those kind of debates. Absolutely, and, and I think that you, you don't necessarily get the opinions that you might think you might... Um, for example, I had a class, was it two years ago now, and there was one of the pupils who was your archetype, very smart, comes in really into politics and economic stuff and all the rest of it, and you could tell he's going to be someone who's going to be slightly on the right wing, slightly on the sort of um, individual responsibility kind of thing, and 
he was arguing for that and then there would be somebody else who would come and go, wait a minute. And these are brilliant conversations to have, but by the same token, you get some surprising people who maybe not, you wouldn't think, are going to be, you know, have those kind of opinions, have those kind of views. Um, but, you know, actually see this in a sense of basic fairness, well, wait a minute, why am I paying for somebody who's, you know, not doing so well to do well and my taxes are going towards that? So there is a whole... You can go down a wormhole, you can go down as far as you want with it. And it's very difficult to be apolitical as well. It's something that um, you have to be mindful of as well. You always get told just before the elections, OK, this is the time you yeah, you can't mention anything about politics. Kids will ask you who you're going to vote for. can't tell them, you can't talk about it. Um, so it's a tricky one to, to manage. But I think it's a really worthwhile one as well. And when they're going to go out, obviously, in a couple of years' time and vote, um, these are actually really important issues. And that, that's one of the, the great things about this topic, I think, is the a lot of the concern that people have in their lives is about jobs, about prosperity, about their prospects. And those are things that we don't discuss enough, possibly. So, so. Do you think there's something to be said, Mark, about the parallels between how Roosevelt used the media and how more recent presidents have used the media? Yeah, I mean, I think that to come back to the contemporary thing again, Roosevelt was your into this, and and you know, as you suggest, communications. Like when when Roosevelt comes to the, comes into the presidency, one of the things that he just revolutionises is is his use of radio. And now, obviously, radio was came came up and becoming a sort of mass medium in the nineteen twenties. But Roosevelt's the first politician to really see its potential, and he makes famous, you know, his sort of fa famous fireside chats for you know sitting beside the fire supposedly and you know speaking softly and giving confidence to americans living in in difficult times and, and listening to him you know maybe all huddled around you know the living room um at home and he and he establishes this direct bond between the american people that just hadn't been there before um and you know you, you see this in the effect that roosevelt's pictures uh, picture is hung in households around america in a way that no president before and arguably no president since um, has ever has ever been and if we think yeah about the communication you know social media was around before donald trump you know the social media i remember you know the, the when barack obama was elected they'd be like oh he uses that quite well but then trump took it to an entirely new level and and showed how with with twitter how he could reach a mass audience um in a way and, and keep them loyal and keep uh, and keep them interested in a way that no other politician had done with with social media before um and the other thing, if we're thinking about communications, just to show the contrast between our society and now, is that Roosevelt was from, I think it was late, the, just before the 1920s, Roosevelt contracts polio. You know, incredibly fit, healthy, wealthy man before that. Arguably not that sympathetic a character. He contracts polio, and it's almost the making of him as a person, I think, and making him a more empathetic person. He, he never walks again. He just goes to bed not feeling well gets up and never walks again for the rest of his life um but the american people were hid from this reality they were told he had recovered from whatever illness he had because we didn't have television and the very few moving images that of franklin roosevelt and these are always fascinating if you can find them is he perfected a way of walking for a camera whereby he would rotate onto his walking stick on one side and then his son would hold him up on the other side so it would look like he was walking. Uh, and there was a speech that he gives at the Democratic Convention where he almost collapses. Um, and had that happened, it's almost certain he would have never won 
because there was such a prejudice against you know people with disabilities at the time fast forward to today you could never do that we know every intricacy you know of of, of anybody who's running you know at least what we can grasp you know the moving images are everywhere we can see almost everything they do roosevelt hid that for his entire presidency and there was an understanding with the media we don't show this uh, and that shows that i think a clear contrast to today's society the continuities and the discontinuities of history right it's yeah. the similarities and the differences which we can you know spot in examples like that to to conclude um based on the discussion that we've had if you were encouraging a teacher to teach this topic what would you say what would be your what would be, what would be your pitch for teaching the new deal i think there's a big payoff to it I, I can see why there's maybe a certain trepidation, you know, particularly we haven't even talked about it, but sort of the alphabet soup of agencies that, are, that you know, that students sort of have to learn all these different uh, WPA, CCC, yep. you know, I, I can imagine there's a, there's a challenge there. But I think hopefully this discussion has shown that if you can engage the kids in these type of discussions, not only is it interesting history, you know, particularly if you look at it through the prism of, of, of Franklin Roosevelt, even Eleanor Roosevelt, who we haven't really talked about as another fascinating figure, or just the general sense of revolution that was almost in the air at the time um but aside from that that if you can get students debating these issues you know you're almost helping mold them into citizens um, that they'll be they'll become and I, and I think you know the way that andrew's described it it sounds sort of empowering for them to have these discussions thank you for listening to this episode of podcasting the past don't forget to check out the podcast description for the link to our tools and resources there are three key points to take away from this episode firstly there's the role of the personal in teaching the New Deal, whether you're looking at the role of Franklin Roosevelt in confidence building or the experiences of ordinary Americans who were affected by the Great Depression and who benefited from the New Deal. Secondly, it's not too hard to write an essay on the New Deal. Quite a lot of the analysis and evaluation points are easy for students to grasp if they're well pitched. One example would be to look at the New Deal through the lens of race and debate whether the New Deal upheld segregation or whether it challenged segregation. Finally, there are plenty of contemporary parallels, whether you're looking at the similarities between Roosevelt's use of radio and Trump's use of Twitter, or the similarities between the New Deal and the Green New Deal.